I say this, it's going to sound tongue-in-cheek, but it's true. I prayed a lot. And we actually had prayer meetings at the Pentagon, 7 o'clock Tuesday mornings. Welcome to Biblical Counseling in Action. I'm Steve Byers, and this is a podcast that addresses questions like, how do these principles penetrate every facet of local church ministry? What does it look like when biblical counseling starts to impact the youth ministry, or our ladies' Bible studies, or our men's ministries, or the way leaders function together, or the way decisions are made in the church? And what does it look like in the lives of everyday church members who have been trained, or maybe who have been counseled, but now they're continuing to live out these principles in everyday life? That's what this podcast is all about. Welcome back to Biblical Counseling in Action. Today we're talking to Honorable Secretary Lisa Hirschman, who served for three years as the Chief Management Officer at the United States Department of Defense. Secretary Hirschman is also the author of the book, Faster, Cheaper, Better, The Nine Levers for Transforming How Work Gets Done. Listen to this. In her time at the Pentagon, Secretary Hirschman and her team were credited with identifying $40 billion, that's with a B, my friends, $40 billion worth of budgetary savings a statistic for which every taxpayer and member of the armed forces is profoundly thankful. I'm also glad to have Secretary Hirschman's husband, Senator Brant Hirschman, with us. I had the privilege of interviewing him separately about his 18 years of faithful service in our Indiana State Senate, and I hope you've caught that podcast as well because it was marvelous. But I thought he could provide a perspective on his wife's work that would be very helpful for us as well. So Secretary and Senator Hirschman, thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Secretary Hirschman, how did you become interested in organizational management and budgetary oversight? That sounds like a mouthful, and it it is. Interestingly enough, I will start a little bit from the end and work backwards, but as I became in my career a senior leader, I worked for a tech company that was in 72 countries and did 63 acquisitions in 13 years. And they needed that not only budgetary oversight to make sure that there wasn't things like duplication and make sure we were making good use of resources, but also with how we worked and came together as one company, considering it was a collection of many companies, that got me very excited. And then I met a wonderful gentleman by the name of Dr. Michael Hammer, who was my co-author in the book that you mentioned, Faster, Cheaper, Better. And from an academic perspective, he had cultivated a methodology to approach that organizational management and that budgetary oversight. And that was something that just really spoke to me as a way to improve business, improve outcomes, improve things with customers. So that's, that's sort of the end of the story. But I have to admit that the very beginning, as I reflect, started at home I wondered about that. Yes, very much so. My father served in the Navy in World War II. And Mm. when he got out of the Navy, he went immediately and started working for GE. Oh, I see. And he worked there for 44 years. Wow. He was a finance person. But I will tell you that our home had reflections of what he learned in the Navy and what he learned at GE absolutely Mm. integrated into our daily lives. So my father was strict. And as a child growing up, that was 
you know, we hated it. But now I look <laughs> back and I am so incredibly grateful because it gave me focus and discipline that I really needed to be successful in my career. And, you know, I'll share, we all had chores. Mm -hmm. And not only did we have chores, but my dad had inspection time after. <laughs> so there was accountability absolutely uh, worked in. We had a young man that lived in our neighborhood, and he had a very different home life uh -huh. where there was no discipline. And his name was Tommy. And my father said to him, he used to come to our house a lot, and he was just amazed at how we ran things. Uh -huh. And everybody knew what their lane was. Everybody knew what their duties were. And my father jokingly said to him, Tommy, you keep hanging out here, and you're going to end up on the refrigerator where he kept the chore list. <laughs> Tommy said, that's okay. And wow. so one of our neighbor kids would come to the house. His job was to empty the wastebaskets in each room before garbage day. And he was excited to show up. And it really wow. made an impression on me that sometimes structure – and mm -hmm. I have used this a lot in my career, becomes very helpful, especially after large changes or, you know, leadership changes. What I watch is people return to structure. And so it can be a good thing as long as it's not overdone. And then my father, I mentioned, was finance. He made us very aware of our financial responsibilities at an early age. I got my first credit card when I was 18. And I thought, woohoo, this is going <laughs> to be wonderful. And he looked at me and he said, here are the rules. You pay it off every single time that bill comes in. Mm -hmm. And he taught me that that was building my credit standing at an early age. And even when I went to college, I was there on two scholarships, but I worked while I was in school. Mm. I worked at the pizza place. <laughs> and my father had me on a budget. And I would have to, when I would go home on breaks, show him the accounting of wow. my spending. And so really, the very early on, that discipline, and by the way, Brant mentioned growing up on a farm, we also farmed, but it was different. We didn't live on the farm. Mm -hmm. It was an apple orchard in North mm. Carolina. And we were there on the weekends. And so my father very deliberately taught us that you, while my friends were at the mall and doing what they wanted, uh -huh. my father taught us you have a responsibility as a contributor to the family and what you need to do comes before what you want to do. Wow. So we talked with Brian's podcast about the delayed gratification that mm -hmm. was instilled in us as well. So, and my mom was a great, she was the spirit and the enthusiasm and the try anything which is also very important when you're looking at, you know, your organizational health and you may not have all the answers and you have to experiment a little. So my parents were huge influencers in my life and my career. I love the story about your neighbor, Tommy. <laughs> and isn't it fascinating that he wanted that? He did. What I really appreciate was how quickly he recognized what was different at his house mm -hmm. and Unfortunately, I've never kept in touch with him, but you wonder as he became a grown man and with his own family life, which did he choose or was it some combination? But I just enjoy so much looking back at the people who influenced your life that you may have never known at the time, and mm -hmm. yet they had a big impact. Hmm. 
you know, just the fact that your parents would raise you in that way, I think it speaks even to the way God made us in his image, designed for order, designed for structure, designed for productivity. Mm-hmm. And it sounds to me like your parents were just helping you live in a way that was consistent with your God-given design. Absolutely. It was tough sometimes because while your friends at school were getting an allowance, we didn't. <laughs> and, and, you know, we asked why a lot. But they answered, and it was logical. And they, my parents, you know, they did other things too. It came to mind as I'm thinking about them explaining it. I also saw a boldness in my parents that when dad had time for a break, we were going on a family break, and it may not have coincided with school. (laughs) So he would take the time to go to the teachers ahead of time, get all of our lessons, familiarize himself with the lesson plans, make sure we did it even in the car. And I distinctly remember driving through some of the mountainous regions of North Carolina, and he would say to me, I want you to pull out your book and open a page and read it out loud, and so I did. And then he would say, look to your left. He coordinated it with, as we were passing the mountain range that we were reading about in a geography book, and made it part, he made everything an experience, and my mom did too. And so that was, I had an incredible upbringing. And yes, they walked and talked the talk. You know, you're pulling this story together for me because I've not known you all that long. I had the privilege of praying with your swearing-in ceremony in Washington, D.C. But I always wondered now, how did God help Lisa get to be Lisa? And even at the swearing-in ceremony, I was sitting next to your friend Steve Forbes, which my father was an accountant, and so my stock would have gone way up if my dad had still been alive when he learned that I had sat next to Steve Forbes. But here's something that Steve Forbes said about you. Observers have long been impressed by her steel trap mind, her executive talents, and her amazing ability to get things done. That's high praise from a man like Steve Forbes, who doesn't just give it out for no reason at all. I think you've just helped me and helped our listeners understand that Part of that, that didn't start when you entered college and took some really good courses. That started a lot sooner than that, didn't it? Very early on, yes. And my parents saw to it. And even with my three siblings, there was no one that got a pass. And they would create things that were appropriate with your age. Mm -hmm. But even, I remember my little brother when he was three or four, dad taught him how to pick dandelions, and then spray it with a weed killer. So everyone, <laughs> wow. we were taught to work as a team and that even small things made a difference as you contributed to the family. Mm. That is so very, very powerful. And I can just imagine parents listening to this podcast and just thinking, am I putting the kind of time and effort into helping my children develop these very kind of character qualities that are going to serve them well after they leave home? Mm -hmm. That's a great story. And my parents were tough too, so don't get me wrong. I remember in, you know, the early years when you start to fib a little bit and my father would say, do I need to get the Bible? And he would have us put our hand on the Bible and state our statement again. So, Do I need to get the Bible? Yeah. And, and then you would quickly rethink your position. <laughs> oh, I totally love that. I totally love that. So prior to your position at the Pentagon, what other kinds of work did you do? 
was strictly private sector. Mm. Uh, so I graduated from engineering school, and I worked first in manufacturing, and some of it was pretty big factories like Caterpillar and GE. I worked in aerospace, so I actually had the opportunity to work on large radar installations and the Seawolf submarine program. Yeah. So I was tangential to Department of Defense as mm -hmm. a contractor. Then I wanted to explore other opportunities in supply chain and service. And so I worked for a large tech company, Avnet, based in Arizona, but they were in 72 countries. Wow. And my role there was to help transform operations in all 72 countries. Oh, my. It was a fascinating job. And again, reflecting, God puts you in places where he knows it will prepare you for later in life. Right. Working in 72 countries, I became very aware of culture mm. and that you don't approach business the same way in, say, Japan that you might in Germany or that you might in North America. And so yeah. learning that actually prepared me for the Pentagon because on day one, I truly believe I was the only person in the building. And when I say the only person in the building, there are pre-COVID 25,000 people that reported to the Pentagon every wow. day. I was the only one who didn't know anybody. Many of them, even the appointees, had served in a previous administration. And so I just approached it as if I was walking into another country. Uh -huh. Their own language, they mm -hmm. speak in acronym. They had terms that I always had to stop and ask, what does that mean? And they got a kick out of it, actually. <laughs> uh, they had their own customs. Literally, how you walk down the hallway in the Pentagon matters. The highest ranking person is the farthest on the right. Oh, really? Yes. And so I just was a sponge, just like in my private sector experience, absorbing all of this because I wanted to understand the culture and be part of it. So I knew the best way to change it. Mm. And that gave me the context. So I worked private sector supply chain, and then I worked in my own business consulting where I had the privilege of working with companies like BMW and USAA, and Pepsi, and some really wonderful companies. So it gave me great, great experience to take to DOD. So this opportunity came up at the Department of Defense. Can you explain to our listeners what does it mean to be the chief management officer at the Department of Defense? I cannot even imagine what that job would be like every day. So can you unpack that for our listeners a bit? Yes, thank you. It, it, it's an unusual position in government. It was a newly created position. It was created on February 1st of 2018, and I started on April 3rd of 2018. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. So <laughs> I had such a unique opportunity. I was basically doing a startup in That's the middle right. of the largest, most entrenched bureaucracy in the world. <laughs> so it was fascinating and challenging and exciting and grueling all wrapped into one package. My role was essentially to govern and run and design all business operations for all of the Department of Defense. Wow. So anytime there was a process in the Navy or the Army or in you know, our accounting group or what have you, I had the authority over those processes and systems and responsible for the outcomes. 
But I was also in charge of transformation and reform, mm. which was of the three main elements of our national defense strategy. We call them line of effort. That was line of effort three. Mm. So my role was in charge of a significant part of our national defense strategy. And, you know, this is where I draw on my faith because God gave us resources and we need to be judicious and prudent with how we use them. Mm -hmm. And that was essentially my role at DOD. Mm. And it made people nervous. People don't like change, you know, not all change. And walking into that organization, they did not know what to expect because they'd never had a role that existed like this. And so, you know, people fear change because they assume there's going to be some type of loss. And so being able to work with folks, get to know them, really make an effort to understand and then make recommendations. And this is where I was influenced by my husband and how he mm. approached very complicated reform in the Senate and listening to all sides and then having them be part of the implementation and the planning was very useful. But I had the, it was the number three position at the Pentagon mm. and I had the authority to overrule when it came to matters of business operations and reform. I had the authority to overrule Secretary of the Air Force, Secretary of the Army, Secretary wow. of the Navy. And so that was not always comfortable for people to know that it was there. Thankfully, I rarely had to do that. I would sit down with them and say, I remember distinctly sitting down with the then Secretary of the Navy, and I said, how do we get to yes? <laughs> and my willingness to meet him on certain things meant a lot. And it mm. broke the stereotype that with my authority, they thought I was just going to come in and clobber everyone. And I didn't. So that served me well, but it was a huge job and very exciting. And I'm so thankful that I had a chance to serve. So how did you process the pressure that would come with a job like that? Every, I just can't even imagine what that would be like. That's probably a better question for my husband because I think uh, he heard a lot of it. It was. It was grueling. We were actually, I remember pulling into my parking space at the Pentagon one day at about five after seven, and I got a phone call from the secretary's chief of staff, and he said, do we have a problem? Because the expectation was still very much governed by that military mindset. Mm. And it was never spoken, but there was an expectation that you were there. You know, you came in in the dark and you left in the dark. Wow. And I mean that from sunset, not intellect. And <laughs> so it was long hours. It was grueling hours. You were at meetings constantly. And the pressure to change and to do it rapidly while the dynamics of your own environment were changing. In the three years I was there, I served under four secretaries of defense. Wow. And so being able to adapt and course correct and still keep your team focused and energized and excited and teach them, part of my job was to integrate and introduce private sector approaches whether mm -hmm. it was new business models or new ways of measuring or all of those things, I had a lot of people to teach new methods. So it was challenging. I say this, it's going to sound tongue-in-cheek, but it's true. I prayed a lot. Mm. And we actually had 
prayer meetings at the Pentagon, 7 o'clock Tuesday mornings. There was a women's prayer meeting, and if mm. you couldn't make it, they would email you the teachings for that day. Wow. And I had an amazing team, and my both of my military assistants were men of faith, mm. and it was not uncommon for us to pray together, just the three of us, to take on the day. So, wow. And I spoke about support systems in Brant's podcast, and he was an amazing support system. He understood government. Mm -hmm. So much of this was I couldn't understand it, mm. and I had to learn to think differently, like how powerful the network is mm -hmm. in that environment and who you know to get things done. So I had to change my own mm. – I had to – shift or enhance my own style from what I was used to. So being humble enough to take on that, even though I'm the number three, I have a lot to learn. Mm. And wow. that balance was challenging, but he was my rock. Mm. Am I remembering correctly that you had the position, what did we say, unofficially, because the confirmation process mm -hmm. took a while. Am I remembering that right? Yes, you are. I actually came in as the deputy chief management officer. I see. And then my boss, who was the chief management officer, left, and then they put me in. But I was in an acting role until I received my nomination. And then the amount of prep work for the nominations is just staggering. Mm. It's on top of your current workload. It was dizzying, to say the least. But I was actually sworn in twice. My first role as the deputy was not a Senate-confirmed position, but the second one was. So I had gone through much less as the deputy than what I had to do for the uh, top position. So the swearing-in ceremony was in February of 2020, just mm -hmm. before our country was really focused on COVID. And it was very important to you that you have your pastor there to pray at that ceremony. And that was intriguing to me because it was a room filled with all sorts of people with great authority in our country and you wanted a pastor there, and you wanted to be sure that prayer was part of it. Can you unpack your thought process for us? So, yes, the pastor, Steve Byers, was, <laughs> thank you for doing that. It was on short notice. It as was. As a matter of fact, as you know, we had the Vice President Pence who officiated, and we had it in his office, mm -hmm. which was quite a treat. And I remember when they got back to me on his availability— and I looked at Brian and I said, oh, my goodness, maybe we ought to push this to March. Mm. And I am so glad that he talked me out of doing that wow. because March, everything was basically shut down at That's that right. point. And there were a lot of people who never got to experience a ceremonial swearing in, which is sad. Oh, That's I wouldn't it. have thought about that. Yes. And so we couldn't have that many people in a room. Mm -hmm. And so I've always maintained that. If you want to know if God has a sense of humor, tell him you have a plan. <laughs> because I even told Brant when he said, do you think you'd ever work for government? I won't share how long I laughed and some of the comments I made. But I do believe that God has always guided my career. Mm. And certainly the gravity of the position that I was taking on and the responsibility and how it impacted the defense and security of our nation mm -hmm. and our military personnel and making sure that we had the funding for equipping them properly, but also being a servant of taxpayer dollars. Right. 
that was a lot. And I knew I couldn't do it without God's hand. Mm. And so not only to bless me, but Brant was there. My family was there. We had close friends. They're all part of my support system. Mm. And I knew that I needed every one of them at certain times to help. And I needed God to bless them too. But I also needed him to bless my path and the work that I was doing and to guide me because there were times where it got tough or it was frightening when you started learning about the sophistication of our adversaries. Mm. It can be overwhelming and you have to stay the course and stay focused. And so I knew I had moments of weakness that I absolutely needed to rely on our Savior to keep me focused and to give me strength. And so doing that from the beginning, just like as a baby when you're baptized. Mm. I was raised Catholic, so I probably (laughs) ought to mention that. It was really important to me, and you did a masterful job, and everyone commented on your lovely words and the impact that it had, Mm. so thank you. Well, and it just impacted me so much that you were being sworn into a position of such incredible authority in this country, and yet you wanted it to be known publicly that you were relying on the blessing and direction of the Lord, except the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it, Psalm 127 tells us, and you were making that very clear. You know, you've told me since then that you have a strong spiritual heritage. Can you tell our listeners about some of that? Sure. It's an unusual heritage, maybe for most. I was raised Catholic, and I mean, I went to Catholic school. I sang in the choir. I was, you know, my parents were very faithful Catholics. And on both sides, my parents combined have a heritage that includes Russian, Ukrainian, Polish, Mm -hmm. and German. And with that came some of the traditions. Mm -hmm. And so we would recognize and celebrate Christmas on December 25th, but then we would also celebrate Russian Christmas Uh and the same with Easter. And even though I don't, I regularly attend Faith Baptist instead, and I have made some changes in my life, I still find myself participating in some of those traditions, Mm. like the blessing of the baskets Mm. before Easter. Uh And with both of my swearing-in ceremonies, I used a Bible that was in my family. It was my mother's godmother's Bible, Mm. and all of her handwritten notes are still there, and it's relatively tattered, but I joked at one of the swearing-in that they knew it wasn't just symbolic, that the it actually got used. That's right. And That's right. What I found amazing was privately after those ceremonies, people would come up to me and said, thank you for using the Bible. Interesting. We don't find many people have the courage to do that. Mm. And some even said, would you be willing to talk to me about your faith and how you're using it in your role? And I wow. said, absolutely. So being able to share that heritage, share my journey with questioning how I was raised and making a a change in direction was something that people I found were interested in hearing, and so it gave me an opportunity to share God's Word and my own experiences. Well, it's just so inspiring because you think about a grandparent, a grandmother who might be trying to have a spiritual impact on her little granddaughter— who knows, that could be the next chief management officer at the Pentagon. And so those are moments spent wisely. Or your, your father, do I need to get the Bible? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. 
who would have ever thought that the young lady that he was having her hand placed on the Bible to be sure she was being truthful would some be, day be in a role where being truthful in order to honor the Lord would have an impact on the direction of our country. Mm-hmm. So it just shows the importance of being a faithful parent or a faithful grandparent, and you just never know how God's going to use that young person, do you? No, you don't. And I think one of the things I am so grateful for my parents was they integrated our faith into our daily lives. Mm-hmm. It wasn't seen as separate that was reserved right. for Sundays, and it was part of our life. We prayed every night before dinner. We sat around the dinner table and ate together. Mm. But my dad had rules around that too. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. Right. But that made it easy for me to even integrate my faith into my work and live my principles because at a senior level and being a, a woman at the Department of Defense in a senior role had additional responsibilities because there were very few of us. And what I had to keep in mind is people are watching all the time, not only your superiors and your peers, but everyone else who may know who you are or hear you give a speech or what have you. And so integrating those signals, like using my Bible, like wearing my cross, that they knew I was a woman of faith by how I surrounded myself, but also I had to be mindful that the way I behaved was also living that faith so that people could see it. You know, the experience that I had that particular day, and it was interesting because that was also during our biblical counseling training conference, and so I had a few other responsibilities that week, but we changed some things around, and I flew out that morning. It was also a day where Vice President Pence's schedule got delayed, and I can only imagine how and why that might happen in the role that he was playing. But that then allowed me a couple of extra hours to be in the room where we were preparing for the ceremony. And I was fascinated by the interaction that I had. In some cases, I'm talking to generals, I'm talking to other political figures, I'm talking to leaders from all walks of life. And what struck me was the kindness and the graciousness with which they treated me. Here I am, some pastor from a flyover state, And yet they went out of their way to be kind and gracious to me from beginning to end. And I I walked away from that experience, and I'd, I'd like to have you both either affirm or correct this thought that, you know, you think about national politics on one level where people are just constantly fighting with each other and all that, and they're just huge egos and all that sort of thing. And yet here I am in the vice president's office being treated with that kind of graciousness. And I walked away thinking, you know, maybe... Maybe there's a different layer of life here in Washington, D.C., where a good person and a person of faith could be involved in this and make a difference without having to get sucked into all of the fray. Mm -hmm. Can you help me process that part of my experience? Yes, and I, I appreciate the question, especially as we watch so many things unfold every day in the news you can easily be discouraged. Mm -hmm. And I was actually at an event last night and I was asked the question, what are you most proud of at your time at DOD? And I said, my team, Mm. because we had amazing people. And so I want all your listeners to know that don't let what you see on TV discourage you from who's actually there serving. There are many, many good people who are there for the right reasons and they are there to serve. One of the things I particularly appreciated about the Department of Defense was part of our culture 
had a great deal of emphasis on honor. Mm. And you could pick anyone in the Department of Defense at random and ask them who the customer was, and they'd all say the same thing, the warfighter and the mission. Mm. And to have that kind of alignment Mm -hmm. with millions of people working for an organization, and I'm including our military personnel, to have that kind of alignment is really stunning. So I watch people with great determination and perseverance because they are driven by service and to be able to serve their country and to become part of something so honorable in the defense of our nation. And that includes cultivating and working with our allies and making sure that we understand our enemies Mm -hmm. and how to defend our country and our people against those enemies. They will go to the ends of the earth to make that happen Mm -hmm. and to be surrounded by those kind of people is just extraordinary. Mm -hmm. Don't get me wrong. There are people who are not Mm -hmm. wired that way, and you have to be careful about, and this is, again, where prayer and God, who to trust and who to be careful (laughs) of is, you know, you work with these people every day, and to be able to discern that so you make good decisions and is very important. But I have to tell you the most amazing day at every year at the Pentagon was on September 11th, Mm. and my team played a very important role in all those services Mm -hmm. and the memories and honoring all those who sacrificed. And I just, that entire day, it started at five in the morning when we unfurled that flag Mm. and watching people really remind themselves as to why we were there. And we had those reminders. It was very important and very touching. And the stories that I heard people who were in the building that day and how Secretary Rumsfeld, Mm. they wanted him to get into the helicopter and go to the bunker, and he refused. And he ran toward the crash site to help Mm. save people. So you hear those stories, and it means something, and it keeps you going. Mm. You alluded to being a woman in this particular position, and I'm wondering about young girls, young ladies who might be praying about, thinking about a role in government, but wondering, is there a need for me? Is there a place for me? Can I be a godly woman and function in this kind of a leadership environment and role? Can you unpack that for us? Yes, you absolutely can. And like I said, in the beginning of my career, if you told me someday that this was going to happen, I would have said, not in a million years. Yeah. So yes, there's not only room, but there's a need Hmm. because... As you asked earlier, how did you take the pressure and the grueling hours and the work that needed to be done, the heavy lift? I absolutely relied on my faith, and it kept me going. But I also found that I I was able to help other people who would come and talk to me when they were feeling incredibly discouraged. Mm -hmm. And these were high-ranking people, too. Interesting. And they suffered from being discouraged or having a shift in direction and, you know, not being able to accomplish things you wanted to Mm -hmm. for a variety of reasons, usually complexity in the systems. And that largely got in the way of good people wanting to serve well. It wasn't that they were at fault, but we had incredibly systems that didn't always work Mm -hmm. and that were flawed, incredibly flawed. So I would say to young men and young women at all levels, Mm -hmm. ages, that there is room for you and we need you. 
And the way to do that is I alluded to some of my own ways of conveying that I was a woman of faith. You can walk into my office and you can see a Bible and you can see things that are not in your face, but create the environment that I liked to have. Mm -hmm. That's what I call the signal. But you have to back up the signal with the style. That's right. And how you conduct yourself, even in, actually not even in, but mostly in tough situations where you have to choose truth over popularity Mm. and really challenge people or say no, that takes strength. And when other people see that you are conveying that through your authentic behavior and being your authentic self, I think that authenticity actually helps. I mean, you think about if you keep focused on you are really there to serve God mm-hmm. and not others, it takes the ego out of the equation mm-hmm. and people really can tell if you are authentic and truly care and are compassionate. And that truth, which can be very unpopular, really sends that message. That was my guidepost for my behavior and modeling things for my team and others. I've got this picture in the back of my mind of a Uncle Sam poster, your country needs you or something like that. And it's, it's almost like that's what you're saying to godly men and women that don't shy away from this kind of government service because there's, there's not only an opportunity, there's a need. There's a great need. And when you think about some of the things our country has been through, and you hear it now, especially on the heels of what we experienced for over a year with COVID, Mm -hmm. people lose hope. Faith gives you hope, Mm -hmm. and faith gives you another direction and peace. It's hard not to worry. Things I learned were not to worry and trust Mm -hmm. God, but I also learned forgiveness and how to pray for my enemies. And I'm not talking about other countries, but people who are pushing against you even Mm. in your own company, if you will, at the Department of Defense when you're doing something unpopular and to be able to pray for them. So there's absolutely a need, and I would encourage those to think about how you may be able to serve, serve God and your country. Senator Hirschman, you um, watched your wife go through these years, and what observations would you have about how the Lord used her and how her story can inspire others to serve in a similar fashion? I am just so proud of what she accomplished, not only what she accomplished, but how she accomplished it, her demeanor, her leadership, Mm -hmm. serving as an example to other women, not only as a senior executive but doing so in a challenging environment mm. that was change-averse, but also living her faith mm-hmm. by being an example to others. And so to synthesize a lifetime of experience, a deep faith, and the interest in helping others, she had mentioned that she mentored a couple of women who were stunned. They were, I believe, both in the Pentagon Force Protection Agency, which is the Pentagon Police. Mm. And so they were many, many levels down the leadership change. And they heard Lisa speak, and she was willing to mentor them. Mm, and wow. the question was why, and she said, because you asked. Yeah, She was a, a repeat speaker for 
all the new senior executive service, which is the senior career folks, not the political appointees, they ask her to come back over and over again because her messaging, her demeanor, her leadership were all very inspirational and uncommon. Yeah. You know, everybody has their own unique style, but her ability to be persuasive and yet a strong leader, uh, obviously confident in her own ability, but a very thoughtful and listening to others, is an uncommon series of traits in today's world. There's some thought that you have to be aggressive. Mm-hmm. I think especially for women in some cases to be a leader, and that is not how she led. And her her success, you talked about her numbers early on, just by way of a barometer, she achieved more than five times all of her predecessors combined mm. in terms of savings. And she did it in a little under three years. They had a decade. Wow. So it shows you what someone who was willing to jump into the shark-infested waters of government service at the highest levels in an entirely new environment to walk in, build relationships, set an example, and demonstrate incredible results. And I couldn't be more proud of her for that. Well, and I just love the way that ultimately this is an example of God working in and through you. I'm reminded of what Paul said in Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so for me, you know, I work in the office down the hall and I do biblical counseling in that setting, but you're taking those exact same principles and you're using them in government service in a way that makes a profound difference. So thank you, Secretary Hirschman, for your service and for just taking the time, along with Senator Hirschman, to talk to us today. We're very, very thankful for the way God has used you. Well, thank you for having us, and thank you for your prayers. Appreciate it. Thank Thank you. You can check out more about our ministry at faithlafayette.org, or if you're interested in receiving biblical counseling training, go to faithlafayette.org slash conferences. You can find these presentations wherever you normally access your podcasts, and you could really help us just to get the word out by telling your friends on social media that these presentations are going to be available. Our hope and our prayer is that this podcast honors the Lord and is a blessing to you.